This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Ghanem. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a great show today. There are so many topics to talk about. Um, we have to talk about APAC's favorite senator, <laughs> a, a skyon for apartheid Israel, Bob Menendez, Robert Menendez, indicted for bribery. Uh, and his wife, Nadine, both of them indicted by the Department of Justice. Just great do, you have, do you have uh, gold in, in the walls <laughs> of your no, house? No, but I was going to ask you, Jamal, do you keep $500,000 in cash? Uh, just just in case. He said his old so we're gonna... this is his, he said it's his Cuban <laughs> roots. I don't know about that. 500000 and then gold bouillons, Jess. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it just goes to show that uh, when you support APAC, you're on the take. And what's ironic is that he was on the take uh, you know, by a number of Egyptian businessmen, and for the Egyptian government, it's a it's a pretty great story. We're gonna we're gonna come back to that. We're gonna talk about Bet Salem. I mean, we've been talking about uh, the way apartheid Israel Jamal ethnically cleanses and uses pogroms to basically de-Palestinianize to uproot and ethnically cleanse Palestinians from historic past. We've been saying that for decades, but Bet Salem. The Israeli Human Rights Group says that uh, Israel is using the settler pogroms to carry out the forcible transfer of Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. It's an incredible story, Jim. I mean, we we say it all the time, but now you have an Israeli organization that has got the data on it. We're not going to have time to talk about this third story, Jamal, which is too bad. But it looks like uh, the United States and the Biden administration and Antony Blinken are rewarding oppression, apartheid, and dislocation, because they've decided to grant the apartheid state of Israel the visa waiver. It's an insult to human rights. It's an insight to every Palestinian. It's it's just grotesque, but we may we may or may not have time. Well, to our guest is going to talk about it, Jess. Well, that's great, because you did a great interview with Adam Shapiro. Adam is with the Israel-Palestine Advocacy. He's the director for the Israel-Palestine Advocacy, uh, Democracy for the Arab World Now. He's going to discuss the federal lawsuits brought by the ADC against Homeland Security, uh, stating that it didn't follow the law in applying the definition of reciprocity for Israel when it admitted it to the Selective Visa Program, just as we said. So this should it's a very good interview. I mean, Adam knows this law. He's been doing this work for a long time. It's a really great interview. Yeah, Jess, and he's a, and he's a plaintiff. Let's first watch the interview and uh, we'll comment on it and go to our stories. On Wednesday, September 27th, the U.S. admitted Israel into the Selective Visa Waiver Program. The waiver requires reciprocity, which means that countries whose nationals are allowed visa-free travel to the United States must not discriminate or deny entry to American citizens without strong cause. However, there is extensive documentation of Israel detaining, questioning, and even turning back American citizens who are either of Arab or Palestinian descent or supporters of Palestinian human rights. A federal lawsuit was filed against the Department of Homeland Security by the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee stating 
that it is not following the law in applying the definition of reciprocity for Israel. The waiver has also drawn strong pushback from four Democratic senators who wrote that Israel has failed to meet the requirements of reciprocity for U.S. citizens with Palestinian residency. The waiver also rewards Netanyahu's extreme far-right government, its apartheid policies, and its ongoing ethnic cleansing of Palestinian neighborhoods. Here on Arab Talk this week to discuss this in depth is Adam Shapiro, who himself has experienced discrimination while trying to enter Israel. He is the Israel-Palestine Advocacy Director at Democracy for the Arab World Now, which works to support democracy and human rights in the Middle East and North Africa. Welcome back to Arab Talk, Adam. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And, and just to add, uh, in addition to what you said about me uh, facing discrimination uh, by Israel, I am also one of the plaintiffs in the, in the case with the ADC, along with three other Palestinians. Well, let's start by you explaining to us, uh, for our audience who's not, who are not familiar with the visa waiver program, and how specific its requirements are regarding reciprocity for any other country wishing to obtain it. Sure. So, uh, as you mentioned, the visa waiver program is very simple. It basically says uh, the United States will allow the citizens of, of a foreign country to enter the United States uh, visa-free, effectively, for up to 90 days, so for tourist uh, purposes may, uh, specifically, um, as long as that country uh, meets a number of requirements, including things like having the biometric red passports and other security-related issues, um, you know, and all of those other conditions concern that other country and their citizens and the logistics of how they deal with, you know, passports and other documentation. The one requirement in the visa waiver program that the other countries have to respect is that they treat American citizens, as you said, in a reciprocal manner, meaning that they're, they allow American citizens, those with U.S. passports, to enter their countries also visa-free for a period of up to 90 days for non-immigrant um, non or tourist uh, purposes, basically. And sort of assumed in this process is that there won't be discrimination, right? Um, the United States doesn't say that it will allow only certain, you know, if we take a country like France. France is a very heterogeneous society. There are people who have French citizenship that come from numerous backgrounds, uh, numerous religious, ethnic, national backgrounds. The United States doesn't say to France, we're only going to let in those French who can prove that they are European, have European ancestors. No, it says all French citizens with a French passport will be able to enter in this program. And the expectation, the requirement for France is that it will do the same for U.S. citizens. There are 40 countries before Israel that participate, uh, members of the visa waiver program. All of them have agreed to this basic uh, you know, requirement. It's the only requirement, the issue of reciprocity, that concerns American citizens in the visa waiver program law. And for all 40 countries, there's not been any kind of side agreement, any kind of memorandum of understanding, any kind of additional protocols or, or anything else that was required in order to have their participation in this program. And so for 40 countries, it's very straightforward. It, some of those countries have to uh, make some logistic changes at their airports 
or their borders to facilitate, you know, this category of people who will come in, uh, meaning American citizens. But otherwise, it, you know, and most of your listeners probably have traveled at some point to one of these countries and, and have experienced that. Um, Israel, however, insisted on having or needed to have, let's say, a memorandum of understanding in relation to the admittance of U.S. citizens, and in particular, those citizens who are Palestinian Americans, who um, by virtue of either their birth or their registration on the Palestinian population registry, um, also appear on Israel's own lists, you know, of their of the people that they control. Um, the reason why Israel needed this is because Israel insisted, not because the United States insisted. The United States could have simply said, here is our standard, this is the law, you have to treat all Americans the exact same way, there is no need for any kind of additional agreement. It's very straightforward. Instead, Israel came to the Biden administration and said, we want to be able to treat these people differently. We want to be able to treat Palestinians who have West Bank IDs and put them under certain rules and regulations. We want to treat those who have Gaza IDs with a different set of rules and regulations. Oh, and by the way, even though we control Gaza, we also don't want to let people into Gaza, mm -hmm. which would be like the United States telling Israeli citizens that they can't go to Florida. Well, I mean, the from what I understand, the details applied to reciprocity are so specific that fees for visas and other paperwork must be the same for both nations. And and, and this is exactly. actually very important, uh, what you've mentioned, that, uh, that the, however, it seems that a special definition of reciprocity has been applied to Israel. Uh, and, and that's a valid example. One example is the Americans residing uh, in Gaza. So how will they treat that? Will they be able to come and go freely? Well, let's just clarify. So unfortunately, the memorandum of understanding and the language that the U.S. government continues to use about the word resident is confusing um, because there's two ways of thinking about residency when it comes to Palestinians with a Gaza ID, for instance. One is, do they actually live in Gaza? So there are some number right now of American citizens who live in Gaza and possess a U.S. passport. Those people at the moment are actually not included in the visa waiver program, even though they possess a U.S. passport, because Israel will not make the Erez crossing this. Uh, it's not a border because it's not an international land crossing. It's just a checkpoint, basically. It's a, it's a big checkpoint. Israel will not make this checkpoint open for the crossing of American citizens to who should be covered by the visa waiver program in order to enter and then leave from the airport. So that class of people, that group of people, American citizens who are resident of Gaza, meaning living there, um, are not included in this program at all. So right there is one class of people. So they're the other class of people, uh, they're totally against. discriminated against. Yeah, so America says... Uh, the, Go ahead. I was just going to say the other type of resident of Gaza is somebody who has a Gaza ID, meaning they were on the population registry for Gaza, but actually live here, here in the United States. Unfortunately, for the memorandum of understanding that was signed between the United States and Israel, they don't clarify uh, the difference, the distinction here. Uh, so somebody who is with a Gaza ID, but a U.S. citizen and living in the United States and tries to fly into Ben-Gurion Airport, at this point in time, it seems that they are able to actually enter at Ben-Gurion. Um, how they are treated, of course, is a different story once upon entry. 
but they're also not able to go to Gaza. So if they want to come and visit their family, if they want to come and just you know go to their place of birth or whatever, they are unable to go there. Furthermore, for all Palestinians who have either a West Bank ID or a Gaza ID, once they enter into the West Bank, for instance, upon trying to leave the West Bank, we have been getting and detailing and part of our complaint is with people who have experienced being held at checkpoints, being detained, being unable to cross back to go to the airport, missing their flights, um, suffering all kinds of indignities and, and humiliation. And fundamentally, the Israeli soldiers at these checkpoints and the officials refuse to accept the U.S. passport. They s insist on seeing only the Palestinian ID and only operating according to that. America says blue is blue, meaning everyone carrying an American passport <laughs> must be treated equally. Yet uh, for myself as a Palestinian American and countless other Palestinian Americans, it's almost impossible to find someone who has not experienced discrimination or detention entering Israel uh, to visit their home or family. It's uh, really, it's the rule, not the exception. We even have uh, two congresswomen, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, based on their criticism of Israel's uh, abysmal human rights record were denied. Why is the United States throwing its own citizens under the bus so that Israel can get special treatment? I mean, <laughs> we, we could ask that question in so many examples of why these United States doing X in order to satisfy uh, Israel. Uh, part of it is, you know, the, the uh, interest of the lobbyists uh, in Washington, D.C. to advance this. Part of it is the interests of the Israeli government um, to to secure this. Um, and ultimately, it is a benefit primarily for Israel. It's not really much of a benefit for the United States. American citizens could travel to, uh, to Israel if you were not Palestinian or of Arab or Muslim descent. Uh, you were large. You were able to go there without harassment, without you know, for the most part, unless you're somebody who's part of like the BDS movement or even Jewish Voices for Peace, let's say. Um, but you know, you were able to go get the visa on arrival and enter. That that process is largely unchanged, basically, uh, with the visa waiver program. It's mainly to enable Israeli citizens to come to the United States uh, and not have to wait for a visa appointment, not have to be interviewed, and not have to pay a lot of money to get a visa. Um, and so it's it's solely a perk, a benefit, you know, for Israel. There might be some economic benefit, you know, there'll be more tickets sold on airlines, some of that money will come to the United States, but that's fairly minimal. Why, you know, the question why is, uh, it's the visa waiver program is kind of an exclusive club. There's only 40 countries in the world uh, that were participating in it and that met the criteria. And Israel wanted to be in that club for a very long time. It finally reached the threshold for eligibility in terms of the number of visa requests that were denied by the United States. The number has to be below 3%. And that only happened in 2022, the fiscal year 2022, largely because of the effects of COVID. And that's why you know it was kind of a unique moment. But I should also say, it's not just because of the effects of COVID. One of the other things that we uncovered in our work on this uh, process was that we found that Palestinians who are resident of East Jerusalem are another group of people that have been totally excluded from this program. And they have literally been erased. Palestinians who are, who are residents of East Jerusalem are stateless, 
but are given Israeli travel documents, uh, which are basically like a passport. They also pay taxes in, to Israel. They also um, have uh, health care through Israel. They, uh, all of their life is controlled by the government of Israel. They are, in effect, what's referred to as nationals of Israel. But Israel, because of the way it operates, because of its own internal system, it doesn't identify nationals by the way we think of nationality. So not as American or French or, or British or whatever. Israel only identifies nationals by their ethnic religious identity. So in Israeli law, there's no such thing as an Israeli national. There's only a Jewish national mm -hmm. or a Christian national or a Muslim national or a Druze national or, or some other categories. Palestinians from East Jerusalem therefore don't get identified as Palestinian nationals or Israeli nationals. They get identified as uh, Arab or, or maybe Muslim or Christian. I forget exactly what they get identified as. Because of that, the United States decided to not include those people in its calculation of the visa denial rate because they don't. the United States decides to not recognize them as Israeli nationals. And so because of that, that rate, that denial rate was lower, mm -hmm. even though, because we know that Palestinians generally get, uh, and Arabs generally get higher rejection rates. Um, and so even the admittance of Israel and meeting the threshold requirements is dubious at best and requires the erasure of a set of Palestinians from consideration entirely. And that's, that's potentially another area of challenge that we might have legally um, later yeah, on. Yeah, when I get back, I get to the actually the legal challenges. When I get our audience to learn more uh, about mm -hmm. what led to this, um, in addition to the lawsuit and 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 the joint letter sent uh, to the government by multiple human rights organizations, there are also four democratic senators who are pushing back against uh, against it as well. Uh, have mm -hmm. you been in contact with them? So uh, just to note that there were four who put out the statement on the day that Israel um, was admitted into the program. But actually, there are 15 who a couple of weeks before signed a letter saying to Senator to uh, Secretary of State Blinken saying that Israel was not eligible for the program, that it did not meet the requirements of reciprocity. Uh, and I and we heard from Senator Van Hollen last night in the town hall meeting saying that um, all 15 agree that Israel still should not be in the program. They just quickly wanted to get a statement out. So only four managed, only four offices managed to sign on. So we should not think it, the number has reduced. 15 is still where we're at. And it's possible that there are even more senators who also agree with this position. Um, so just to, to keep that clear that we're not losing support at this point. Um, so we're talking to those offices. You know, we have submitted in our lawsuit the letter from led by uh, Senators Van Hollen and Schatz with the fifth, with the other uh, 13 or 14 uh, senators uh, as uh, as evidence, basically, in our lawsuit. Um, and we're talking to the senators to see if it's not possible to somehow get a, uh, an oversight hearing. Uh, I should say that uh, Senator Gary Peters from Michigan, which has a very large uh, Arab American population in the state, uh, including a lot of Palestinian Americans, um, he chairs the uh, Senate over Senate Committee on on Homeland Security, and so it would be under his uh, purview to have a hearing uh, on oversight of this. And we've been talking, you know, reaching out to his office since uh, before the memorandum of understanding was signed, and definitely afterwards. 
uh, asking for a hearing. And we just simply want to have, you know, the, 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 those who are in favor of Israel joining the visa waiver program are more than welcome to come and present their case. But there is a very simple question that has to be asked. Why is discrimination through the memorandum of understanding creating different classes of American citizens? Why has that been allowed? And why does it deviate from the reciprocal, the definition of reciprocity that every other country that participates in this program meets and respects? If you're, if you're an advocate for Israel joining the program, that's fine. Just meet the same de yeah. definition of reciprocity as every other country. And unfortunately, Gary Peters has refused to move on this issue and refused to call a hearing uh, to look at this. Well, they say uh, that they are going to be monitoring this closely as well. And I'm quoting here, we'll keep pressing for answers as to how the U.S. government will ensure that Israel ultimately comes into full compliance with the VWP requirements as well as that as as well as what mechanism the US has to monitor the implementation of one system for all US citizens travelers by May 1st 2024 is this another trial period it's not a trial period um the U again unique to Israel um Israel said that it would not be able to have its system in place in time uh by the deadline of September 30th to um, electronically register all travelers um, heading over, or, or sorry, coming into Israel. So basically for, for travelers coming from Israel to the United States, they have to submit their data through the US program called ESTA. Israel's creating a similar program for people from, for American citizens traveling there called Marom. Nowhere in the visa waiver program statute does it say that the, the systems that need to be set up can be set up later. Everything is supposed to be done by the deadline. But written into the Memorandum of Understanding, Israel was able to get this um, de uh, delayed deadline, basically, of uh, May 1st, 2024. Um, and until then, Palestinians are subjected to, you know, directly dealing with COGAT, uh, which is the, the coordinator of government activities in the occupied territories, which is basically the Israeli military authorities of the... Um, of the uh, West Bank, uh, Gaza is a little bit different. But um, so Israel has been given this extended period. Uh, May 1st is not a deadline. There's built into the visa waiver program, six month periodic reviews by the Department of Homeland Security. And they've been telling us all along, when we have issues, when we have problems, anybody who, any travelers had an issue, submit that information via the US embassy uh, portal, this new uh, system they created to document and, and receive these complaints. And people have been doing it. Now, we have no transparency on that. We don't know how many complaints they've received, what kind of complaints they've received. When we hear about them as civil society groups here in the United States, we obviously gather that information. But many other people could have submitted, and we won't know those numbers. So, uh, unfortunately... Here, wouldn't, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't the right way to do this be to have Israel demonstrate reciprocity consistently for a long period of time, say a few years before even being eligible to apply. What's the rush on the part of the U.S. except to deliver a political gain to, to Netanyahu? I mean, it, yes and no. I mean, yes, that's true. But I would say that it, it really is a technocratic issue. The 3% the threshold is only good for that fiscal year. Mm -hmm. So the Israel re reached 
a lower than 3% visa denial rate in 2022, the number gets recalculated for 2023 and recalculated for 2024. So yes, on one hand, when in March, I guess it was, it was determined that Israel had definitely reached that threshold of less than 3%. They could have at that moment in March said Israel is eligible for the visa waiver program in order to enter. It has to agree that every U.S. citizen is allowed to enter and there's no distinction between American citizens. And there's no area under Israel's control that is off limits for American citizens. Had it done that, you would have had a testing period starting in April or May, you know, until the, the technicalities get worked out, um, until September. So at least then it would have been a five-month or six-month uh, period to test. No, instead, Israel insisted on this, uh, you know, carve-out, basically, uh, got the agreement signed in July, didn't actually agree to let Palestinians with Gaza ID enter at the airport until September 11th. So basically, we're talking about a two-week period of testing. Of the, mm. of the entirety of, of what Israel has agreed to. And, you know, I, I it just boggles the imagination, like the, how to think that the United States really did any kind of like assessment of, of Israel's compliance with any of this. And we know from the stories that people have shared and from the experiences that they have that have been reported to the U.S. Embassy that it is just patently not equal treatment. So on what legal grounds is the ADC suing the Department of Homeland Security Uh, what yeah. does it hope to achieve? Uh, reversing the decision or making sure that Israel will comply 100% in uh, reciprocity? So uh, for full disclosure, myself and, and many others in our civil society, you know, in our community, don't believe Israel should be in this program at all. It is, uh, you know, uh, an apartheid government. It is maintaining a system of discrimination against Palestinians, you know, in occupied territories in, in 48. Like, that's our starting point. That's our position. However, if this program is going to be going forward, and we should acknowledge that many Palestinian Americans who've flown over and gotten in through Ben-Gurion Airport have an ease of travel, are able to visit their families for the first time in many cases, go back to their homes in an, in an unobstructed way coming in, at least, um, in most cases, there is a benefit to Palestinians to be able to go back to using the airport, which they were using, by the way, prior to the Second Intifada. So this isn't a totally new thing, right? It's a, it's a return in some ways to previous practice. But in terms of reciprocity, you know, if we're going to take this uh, at face value and deal with the issue as it is, um, if Israel is going to be in the program, the ask that we have is that it respect reciprocity according to the law. The law set out what reciprocal privileges are. 40 visa waiver program countries since, I think, 2008 have been participating in it. There's never been a question about it. There's never been an exception made. And the law is clear, as you said at the beginning. Um, what we're, we're challenging is basically that through the memorandum of understanding that was signed on July 19th, by creating these different classes of American citizens and the U.S. government agreeing to it, um, this is a new definition of what reciprocity is. And that in the, in the language of the statute and the language of, of the way the government works, that's called making a new rule. They don't have the authority, it's our contention, that according to the law, they don't have the authority to make a new rule, basically arbitrarily. Either there has to be a period of like, 
you know, um, notification and community feedback and all kinds of, of you know, uh, opportunities to push back and then have the uh, agencies like evaluate that. Or they have to do it through the through the legislature and, and have the legislature uh, make it an amendment to the law. And in both cases, the agencies, meaning State Department and DHS, didn't do that. And therefore, their actions are both illegal and arbitrary and capricious. That's the language. And that's what we're challenging. So we're challenging effectively this technicality of rulemaking. But what that rulemaking gets to is the opening the door to discrimination. There can be and there will be, I know already lawyers are working on this, new lawsuits separate from this one. I, I should say, all right, sorry. Also, our lawsuit is brought under what's called the Administrative Procedures Act, which is a very boring part of the law, which is just administrative law, which isn't about proving discrimination. It's about proving whether the agencies acted legally or, or illegally in terms of, again, the rulemaking. There will be challenges about equal protection issues, about discrimination, and those will probably be very much bigger classes of lawsuits representing much bigger numbers of people and organizations. And I know that there are lawyers already working on that. But those kinds of lawsuits could... You've mentioned that you're a plaintiff in in, in the lawsuit. So I don't know if you can talk about the particulars uh, of your lawsuit. So even though I... uh, Trying to enter and leave Israel... I, that I don't know, to be honest. I, the last time I tried was in 2013 when my son was due to be born and I was not allowed to, to join Hoeda, my wife, um, for his birth uh, because I was apparently still under a ban. Now, my ban may have expired. It may not. I, I really don't know. But I'm not challenging this because of a ban that I might suffer. Because Israel and every country always has the right to keep people out according to security grounds and they do get to define what those security grounds are. And if they want to consider me a security risk, you know, so be it. Um, But I am challenging it on the basis that I am of the group of people who's not Palestinian, but who is still defined as a separate group of people. So I might be in the privileged class, somebody like me, but I'm still in a different class than my family, friends, uh, colleagues who are in lower or different classes. And as the Supreme Court set out a long time ago in this country, uh, separate is not and can never be equal. And so even though I'm in a different class, I'm not equal by being in that class than the others. And I felt it was really important to bring that challenge from that perspective also to show to the courts and to the government that those of us who want to get, who get privileged by Israel are still not, we don't agree with that. And we are demanding equality as an act of solidarity for our Palestinian uh, brothers and sisters. What do you see as the best strategy to pursue uh, going forward in conjunction conjunction with with the lawsuits, you know, for activists, human rights organizations, Mm -hmm. um, you know, American citizens who who are against uh, apartheid, basically? Yeah. Look, I think uh, the... uh, the challenge is, has to be on two levels. One is that we have to ratchet up our efforts, and as we have been doing, to make this uh, clear, unequivocal, and get more allies to acknowledge and recognize that Israel is an apartheid state, because that will then take a lot of things off the table, right? As long as those things are on the table, though, we have to deal with them as they're on the table as well. And so it's a two-pronged strategy. One is to try to deny Israel those spaces to operate as a, as a recognized normal country, let's say, 
uh, respected country or government. And then the other is to then challenge it in those spaces that they are already operating. And so here, what I think we need to do is definitely bring legal challenges. We definitely need to continue to document every single Palestinian, Arab, Muslim, uh, advocate for Palestine, BDC, BDS supporter who does go over, um, regardless of your treatment, whether you're denied entry, whether you're allowed entry, but then you know face harassment or other kinds of problems from the Israeli authorities. We need to document that, submit the information through the government channels because we don't want to give them the excuse that they're not receiving the reports. And then also bring it up to places like ADC, AI, uh, you know, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, uh, other organ- community, ba- uh, the American Federation for Ramallah Palestine has been very active in this. All these organizations that are in the community, we need to bring them all together and really strongly advocate on this. Ratchet up the pressure uh, on our senators, especially Senator Peters, as I said, because he's got the oversight role. Um, to 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 push them with this information that we have, data data is going to be our friend. Now, I'm I'm certainly one who's been around long enough to know that once Israel's in, it's almost impossible to get it out. Um, and we you know we've made that argument <laughs> as well with with the with the authorities. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't keep pushing. And that's I would think there it's be any monitors that the, that the U.S. Uh, you know. Department of Home, Homeland Security place or or the uh, U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem at least to monitor the situation because you're you're relying on data that mm-hmm. might be submitted by those who um, are denied entry or harassed and so forth and not all of them are going to do that right right right. Uh, allegedly, you know, DHS is going to be monitoring. There is the Office of Palestinian Affairs uh, in in Jerusalem that's uh, separate from the embassy. They are an ally in this, definitely. They have been raising flags and concerns the entire time. Um, so there, there is that. Um, but look, with DHS, you know, and I hate to say this because we've engaged with DHS for a long time, but at this point, we can't take them at their word. They say they'll be monitoring. There is a civil rights uh, component to the DHS. We've, we we think we need to engage that office even more now that this program is starting. Um, but, you know, they also said blue is blue until July 19th. Mm-hmm. And then they stopped saying blue is blue. And I asked uh, one high-ranking official at DHS about this on a call on July 20th. I said, does this mean, does the MOU mean that blue is blue is no longer uh, a, forget a priority. They told us it was it was fundamental. I said, "Does that mean it doesn't exist anymore?" And he said, "Yes." <laughs> so we we just can't really take them at their word, and so we have to keep finding ways to hold it to fire, expose it in the media. I know there's been a lot of good reporting in a lot of circles on this. We need to keep it up and really expose it. Adam Shapiro, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you so much. That's the voice in the face of uh, Adam Shapiro, is the director for Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now, discussing the lawsuit brought by the ADC against Homeland Security, basically saying it didn't follow the law, the rule of law and the law, when it admitted uh, the apartheid state for the visa wa- waiver program. It's it's a very compelling analysis and lawsuit, Jamal. I wonder how Homeland Security and the State Department and Anthony Blinken are going to respond. Well, I mean, here is the here is the deal. This lawsuit was brought before that decision, 
when right. rumors or leaks uh, pointed that uh, the State Department is going to announce it sometime end of this week or next week right. and so forth. And then the lawsuit, uh, press release was uh, was put in uh, and was distributed about a couple of days ago. And as soon as that press release went out, they decided, the State Department, to announce that, yes, they are going to approve or they are going to admit Israel into the visa waiver program because the lawsuit, the intent of the lawsuit is to stop this from happening right. because, uh, and the ADC, and I mentioned Adam Shapiro, Adam Shapiro is a plaintiff himself, so he himself is going to testify how he himself faced discrimination and was not uh, admitted to Israel and so forth. But also, aside from the ADC, which is bringing uh, the lawsuit, other organizations have written to the State Department, to the Department of Homeland Security. They're supported by four senators, of course, in Congress, maybe more, actually. He mentions, actually, there are more, but uh, announced for four senators and, of course, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and Congresswoman Omar, uh, Ilhan Omar, who both were denied entry. Imagine. Right. Uh, both right. denied entry in, in, into Israel. They were discriminated. And, and, and the basis of it, uh, is really this is the this is the motto or uh, the soundbite that the State Department keeps announcing that blue is blue, meaning all blue passports, all American passports it's should such be BS. treated equally. It's such BS, and that's the case. And 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 the case is if you travel to France, uh, just you know you're admitted with no problem because blue is blue. You go to other countries which uh, enjoy the reciprocity, and the United States has to do the same. In other words, a French citizen comes to visit the United States under the same reciprocity. And you know, in France, 10% of at least 10% of the population there uh, is Muslim, Muslim, many of them come from Northern Africa and, and Africa and so forth. And the uh, they cannot say but just because you're black, or just because you're a Muslim, or just because you're from uh, your parents or grandparents came from Algeria, we're not going to admit you to the United States. But that's right. the game that Israel plays when they see a US passport uh, uh, for a, with a Palestinian or Arab name or a Muslim name. And we know the stories which we reported and almost every single Palestinian American uh, has experienced traveling through Ben Gurion or that, the Alenbi Bridge. But that's why it's such a joke, Jamal. I mean, this has been been pushed for many, many years, as we know. The 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 lack of reciprocity when it comes to Palestinians and Arab Americans who have American passports who go and try to visit historic Palestine are always harassed, detained sometimes deported. It's happened to you. It's happened to me. It's happened every time we go. We get the special treatment. The red so, treatment. Re exactly. <laughs> VIP, we get the special little room off to the side before we go, you know, through processing, you know, visa processing. So, I mean, it's happened every single time that we go. So my, my, my question is, it's still happening. I mean, there was this test period you know, for the last number of months where the United States government was testing to see if the apartheid state, if their regime, the Netanyahu regime, was really legit about this. And we've heard many, many stories of American citizens uh, 
Palestinian Americans being treated the same way. No reciprocity whatsoever being detained and denied. And and just there are so many flaws in this whole process. So many, not one flaw. Number one, they've rushed into it. I mean, to to conduct a study, you're a scientist. Do you you conduct a study over three months or two months or whatever? It takes years sometimes to, and, and, and so they've rushed it. It's, the period is very short. It comes on the heels of uh, COVID when most Palestinian right. Americans weren't traveling, so they can't go with the numbers. The numbers are low. You don't have an exact sampling. Then, last but not least, they did not include in the study uh, Palestinian Americans with Jerusalem IDs or who are because exactly. they're in a no man's land. Exactly, so Jamal. Tracked exactly. like saying, okay, this is a Palestinian M- American with a uh, Palestinian Authority passport, whether from Ramallah or or, or issued in Gaza. So That's you don't right. you don't have that. So, like you could see the pattern. It was pushed and pushed by Ambassador Knight Knights the de- who departed. Just kind of like let's get that through before I leave. And now the Biden administration rammed it through. Because he wants votes and he wants Apex donations and money and whatever. And then they're rewarding apartheid, just they're rewarding Israel. They're reporting an apartheid regime and they're rewarding Benjamin Netanyahu. Well, that, that, that's the thing that's really irksome. You have two really important points right now, Jamal, that you referenced. One is that they're rewarding apartheid. I mean, you know, the apartheid regime of Israel has been occupying historic Palestine for seven decades. They continue a pattern of occupation, dislocation, and ethnic cleansing. They flaunt international law. They have the op- the largest open-air prison in Gaza, blah, 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 blah. We've said it so many times. I'm blue in the face. But at the same time, you have this apartheid state, Jamal, that is kind of dismantling the so-called elements of democracy on top of it being an occupying power, on top of it being an apartheid state. And all that being said, they're going to reward it. I think it reeks, it stinks, it's beyond politics. And I think that, Jamal, we will continue to report on this story because you and I both know we, we are going to hear stories of Americans, Palestinian Americans, Americans with blue passports, who are going to continue to be detained when they go visit historic Palestine. Moving on to our next oh, story. Oh, this is such a great story, Jamal. Get out your gold bullion. Before, <laughs> just show us, show us the $500,000 you keep in your suit coat pocket for emergencies, Jamal. So here, here, here is the thing, Jess. This is the second time second. in his career... Right. That New Jersey Democratic Senator Robert Menendez has been rocked by a corruption scandal. Most people, I actually forgot about this I, 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 until until I saw I saw this oh, in I writing that, that this is the second time. No, because I didn't. The forget. first time he got out of it. This, this, yeah, but it took him years. It took I know, but I kind of like oh, the second time I had to kind of think twice about it. So, so until his last uh, uh, latest scandal erupted, Menendez' corrupt past had, had been securely flushed down. What they say, the memory lane or memory toilet. No, memory, memory toilet. And this is uh, just going back to that. You know, 
Of course, now let's start with, with today. Today, his bribes, you mentioned gold, and, and we're not joking about that. So, so he has massive bribes of cash, gold, $60,000 uh, Mercedes convertible in exchange for favors to Egypt that included included passing uh, along non-public information on military matters uh, to the CC right. government. Uh, and so that's, that's the latest of his scandals. And uh, I'm worried and because I was reading... Just one thing, I was, I'm worried because I was reading about his first scandal, which looked like even worse, and he beat it. Yeah, but the politics are different now. The The involvement is different. The the kind of, uh, yeah, what he did before was worse, there's no doubt. But the, 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 the ability of the Justice Department on the first go-round to prove beyond a reasonable doubt his guilt, he was able to get off of it. This, however, they've built, I believe, a stronger case, even though maybe the what he did perhaps wasn't as bad as the first time. But the evidence that they have, Jamal, against Menendez, against his wife, is really staggering. I mean, it's it's kind of overwhelming. But I think we have to, like, be really clear. This is the APAC darling. This is a Democratic senator from New Jersey, Jamal, who who has been on junkets to the apartheid state innumerable times, is lavished by APAC, and it just goes to show you the kinds of people that APAC has uh, got under its wing. It's, I guess, well, what, what's well, the saying, Jamal? Birds of a feather? Fly what's together. that saying? Yeah. Flock together. Well, yes. listen, uh, when the Democrats took the Senate back, Menendez once again became chair of the Foreign Affairs Foreign Relations. It's a very powerful That's committee. exactly very poor. And then talking about the earlier indictment, uh, he was basically accused of getting bribes from Salman Melgan, a Florida right. uh, major pro, he's a doctor, uh, I think ophthalmologist, He's a major pro-Israel activist and, and donor, and he was defrauding, you like that. He was defrauding Medicare uh, right, for at least uh, $50 million. Right. So some of those, uh, what he defrauded, the $50 million, he was passing along to Menendez. And, and uh, of course, he, 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 won, he didn't win the case. It was a mistrial. So he, so he right. got off the hook. And... In his corner, guess who was in his corner? Your favorite, uh, Alan Dorshowitz. Of course. Uh, Sheldon Adelson, Sheldon and Miriam Adelson, right. Haim Saban, Mortimer Zuckerman, and Seth, Seth Klarman, all major pro-Israel donors. They were like funding his defense. They were all in his corners, and he I, managed... I think Dershowitz, Dershowitz might come out of retirement to defend uh, Menendez again, Jamal. I mean, this uh, is such a terrible story in so many ways. I mean, the irony and, and, and the fact that he took all this money and he continues to come up with these bizarre stories about how he feels unsafe because of his Cuban roots. He has to hold $500,000 in cash. It's just like, it's bizarre. Nobody's so, going to believe it. So he's, th there is nothing about, by the way, Israel 
or anti-Palestinian that he didn't take a position on. Of course, he was opposed Everything. to the Iran nuclear deal, which has nothing, that's a whole separate story. He opposes the BDS, the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. He co-sponsored the Israel Anti-Boycott Act and Combating BDS right. Act of 2017. Right. Then, okay, he, called, he he was a big supporter of the U.S. Embassy's move to Jerusalem, Jerusalem from, from right. Tel Aviv. Right. Uh, Co-sponsored the United States Israel Security Assistance Authorization Act of 2018. That's when uh, Israel got tons of money from the United right. States. Right. Uh, it's a legislation that supported full funding of security assistance. And he supported the 2016 U.S.-Israel Memorandum of Understanding. Anyway, you, he has a long history uh, well, of I supporting just APAC. It. And, yeah, and, and just... at its conference, he said, most of you, that I have resumed my role as the ranking member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I do not waver in my beliefs, even when others do not stand up for Israel. And he, he goes on. So he's, a, he's their darling. <laughs> Well, I, I, I wish him the best in jail. Uh, what, what will make it difficult from a political standpoint, Jamal, is because they will go after him to show that this isn't partisan, right? Because they're saying, well, you're going after Donald Trump. It's a partisan attack, blah, blah, blah. I'm hoping, I'm hoping, you know, that they will throw Menendez under the bus, <laughs> in an attempt to show that this is not partisan, because it's really not partisan. The guy has been taking bribes for decades. Uh, I mean, there needs to be the presumption of innocence, of course, but it sure looks and smells like bribery and corruption to me. So we'll, we'll follow this story. I mean, even Cory Booker, the junior senator from New Jersey, has called for his uh, resignation. But not so, Schumer. Not Schumer. Well, of course. Well, Schumer. He said he should get a fair trial, and he has been <laughs> a great advocate. He, he, he should Jersey get a fair trial. So he should get a fair trial with Alan Dershowitz as a uh, as a defense counsel. We will see. So we've uh, we talked about the story many times, yes, but it yeah. just keeps getting keeps worse and keeps worse. Going. No, yeah. it keeps going. So because Beth Salem is this is a this is a really important study that they did, Jamal. And yeah, and it is again a new publication by the Israeli human rights group Betzelem, which says that again Israel is using settler pogroms to carry out forcible transfer of Palestinians. Before they separated the two, right, which is very important to look at when when they had their reports and say, oh, the settlers were co committing violence and pogroms etc and the israeli army whenever they they violated palestinian human rights they reported that uh, separately but now they're putting them together and they're they're putting that in this report that actually the israeli government is using the settlers hiding behind the settlers exactly kind of almost egging egging them on and encouraging them to just like go ahead and get rid of Palestinians of, of their land. And that's what's happening. Well, it, they, they have been doing that consistently. 
they've done it under multiple different covers. They've tried to hide it. They've tried not to hide it. What's different about this report and what's different about what the apartheid state doing is doing now is that they are using illegal colonial settlers who are Israeli citizens to do the bidding of this ethnic cleansing, to, to engage. I mean, you and I have been not only talking about this, but, you know, the videos and the pictures of, of these illegal colonizers setting, setting Palestinian farmland ablaze, burning Palestinian homes, uh, going through towns and rampaging, you know, injuring, maiming, shooting, and killing Palestinian civilians. This is the 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 intensity of it and the scope of it has just increased dramatically. And this kind of relates to the first story, right, Jamal? Because this is all going on under this right extremist kind of, you know, I mean, it's only a right-wing extremist government, but extreme, extreme, extreme. Uh, they, you know, the United States has decided to reward this kind of behavior. So we've come full circle in our in our stories today, Jamal. It's it's really it's really crazy. But we should encourage our listeners and our viewers to go to the Bet Salem report. It's on their website. Yeah, it's uh, eleven hundred Palestinians uh, have been displaced. You know, this year, eleven just this year, yeah, just this year. And, That's just and, in the West Bank, by the way. Does I don't think that includes Jerusalem, does it? Or does I it? I think it includes Jerusalem. It does, okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, and this is from the Beth Salem report and their spokesperson, uh, Dror Sadot, who says this Israeli policy and this is a state, this is state violence. The things that settlers are doing are backed by the state, funded by the state and the army protects and allows it. So you have now the creation of new outposts, violence against nearby Palestinian villages, which increased significantly and, and has been, uh, and have been uh, basically has been es- es- escalating assault on, on Palestinians. Uh, and uh, 99% of the time, they get away with it. They get away with it, and the army supports them, or they 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 arrive late after the crime has uh, has they been They give them cover. It's not that they arrive late; they give them uh, political and military cover to do these crimes, Jamal. And let's not forget, many most of the settlers are in the military. Come on, they carry guns. They yeah, carry automatic exactly. weapons. We exactly. talk about here. Uh, Gun control. There is no gun control in settlements, well, Jess. No, no. It's these are militarized outposts. That's what our 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 viewers and listeners should understand. These are militarized outposts, illegal colonial militarized outposts on occupied Palestinian land. Full and, stop. And and you see all these uh, reports or these images in the media when the government acts like they think they overstepped wherever the boundaries, I don't know where are these boundaries. These settlers who are armed, they get arrested, and then there is a revolving door, and then they get out. Right. And I'm talking about settlers carrying machine guns. No, absolutely. According to the claims of the Israeli military there, when you see a kid, a 14-year-old kid, supposedly with a knife, he or she is shot on the spot. That's the difference. Yeah. That's yeah. that's where you see it. 
Well, that's the that's the classic Israeli extrajudicial assassination policy that they have against Palestinians, Jamal. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download the latest shows, and we'll see you next week. See you next week.